Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the complete submission to the will of the Father that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior, exemplified and followed on his way to Calvary. The burden of our sin lay so great upon him that he shed those drops of blood under the pressure, under the weight, Lord, of the wrath of God, the cup poured out on him that was due our sin. It is this Jesus Christ who took upon himself the weight of judgment we deserve that we uphold and lift up in the praises of his people in this place today. It is him we proclaim to the lost as the only way, hope, truth, life, and door unto eternal life and salvation. It is him into which those who will be baptized today are identified in his burial, in his resurrection, unto the promise of resurrection with you, Lord Jesus, one day unto again heaven eternal. It is Jesus Christ who paved the way for access to the Father, reconciliation, indeed into the holy place, the temple not made with hands, the fellowship of the Lord, the most holy God, by way of his torn flesh and shed blood. He is the anchor which lies beyond the veil that gives us safety, secure passage, where we can boldly say, in our Lord and Savior and Mediator and High Priest, we have access to friendship and covenant renewal with God Almighty. It is Jesus Christ we proclaim. It is Jesus Christ we worship. It is Him we love and adore because of the great work He has done for us and that He first loved us and shed His holy blood that we might be united to Him and God the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have ordained to use the means of the proclamation of your word and the gathering of your saints to reinforce to our souls the message of the Holy Gospel. We thank you that you use the proclamation of your word to call to life dead sinners unto repentance and faith. We pray that you would accomplish these things through the proclamation of your word and the testimony of the same in baptism today, that the name of Jesus Christ might be glorified in the lips and the lives and the testimony of all who gather here, and the lost might be gathered unto salvation that more voices might join that great multitude singing praise and worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Thank you for these moments that we have. May they be maximized for your use and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I would urge you to turn in your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 3. What a great privilege it is. What a glorious blood-bought gift to be able to gather in the name of Christ our Lord and to consider His Holy Word today. Today we do so from several passages in Hebrews 3. Our worship text will be Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message is The Greater Moses. The Greater Moses. Who is the Greater Moses? Well, that would be Jesus Christ. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to proclaim the glories attending baptism into Jesus. To proclaim the glories of baptism or the glories attending baptism into Jesus. I have a little bit longer, kind of a secondary aim. The glories of baptism into Jesus will be featured in this message, Lord willing, as Jesus Christ is the one like Moses, yet eclipsing him by fulfillment and sufficiency. Jesus Christ is proclaimed in Hebrews as the one like Moses, yet eclipsing, yet greater still, that is to say, by fulfillment, fulfillment of what Moses prefigured and prophesied, and by sufficiency, satisfying what Moses could not accomplish. This is Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, whom we proclaim this day. 
As you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, consider now the holy scriptures as we hear them today proclaimed. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews introduces us to Jesus in glorious and superlative terms, if you will. We've been introduced to Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1.1 by these words long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. One of those prophets, of course, and a great one indeed before Jesus arrived on the scene was Moses. He was the subject of our sermon last week. But then we have this point of contrast in verse 2. But in these last days, which means fullness of time ordered according to God's holy will, something has changed. An event has dawned on history, and it looks like this. He has spoken to us, that is, God the Father, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Then we get to the gospel right away in this great book. After making purification for sins, it says, continuing in verse 3, He, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus Christ, the greater Moses. Now, as we see the book of Hebrews introducing us to Jesus in such grandiose and such amazing, glorious terms, we remember that He is proclaimed <clears throat> in redemptive history with reference to men and angels of significance throughout covenant history. In other words, up to this point, up to the point of the Incarnation, God has done amazing things through His angels and through His men of significance. Yet there is one that they all look forward to and all proclaim that eclipsed them all, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the theme of the book of Hebrews. The greater portion, therefore, of Hebrews, Hebrews continues to document Jesus Christ's superiority to all of these, the angels and men of renown, prophets of old, and so forth. In different ways, we see this in the context. The context of the book of Hebrews gives way to the multifold office of the Messiah. The many ways that Jesus satisfied our redemption by serving in multiple capacities, what just one at a time and only in shadow form could accomplish before Him. The priesthood of the Mosaic Law gives way to the high priesthood of Christ. Or the priesthood of Aaron is eclipsed and gives way to the high priesthood of Christ. The sacrifices of the temple and the ceremonial worship with their slaughter of bulls and goats and lambs and so forth, that worship is fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ, who is identified that the, uh, as the lamb that was slain on the cross. The place of God's visitation in the Holy of Holies is eclipsed by the door of heaven's gate thrown wide open through our resurrected and ascended Lord and Savior. And this book proclaims 
That access into the holy place, which means friendship and fellowship with God, is available because he shed his blood and his body was torn for us. Last week, we had a message which considered the meaning and benefits of this phrase, baptism into Moses. This comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5, where the experience of the people alongside or following Moses, their deliverer, was spoken of as a baptism. So we asked ourselves, what would it be like to be baptized into Moses? Well, that would mean following him through the Red Sea after God did his supernatural work and the water stood in two heaps, one on the left and one on the right. Being baptized into Moses meant that you shared the spiritual food and drink that was supplied in the wilderness, supernatural life-sustaining manna from heaven and supernatural life-sustaining water that sprung forth from a rock on multiple occasions. Pretty amazing. These are the meanings and benefits of baptism into Moses. However, today we explore something greater still, which is baptism into the greater Moses, baptism into Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 34 closes, the book of Deuteronomy closes with these words. Let me read them to you. Don't necessarily need to turn there. Listen to the scriptures as the era of Moses is drawing to a close. And there, verse 10, has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So what we find in this moment in the scriptures is a recognition of the signal a signal importance of Moses. Not till Jesus Christ, in many ways, will we see a prophet of this caliber. However, he was prophesied. All the way back in Deuteronomy 18, we read this. Verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking. From among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. A greater than Moses would arise. Moses himself said as much. Verse 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, words of the Lord, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded them. Now we wonder to ourselves, when will the greater Moses come? At least we put ourselves in the shoes of those who awaited the arrival of one greater than the servant God used to part the Red Sea. The arrival of one greater than the uh, prophet who called down the wrath of God in tenfold plagues upon Egypt, a greater one than he who supplied by the word of God and obedience to him access to life-sustaining food in the wilderness for 40 years, all the while leading the people out accompanied by a cloud of fiery glory at the daytime and, or at nighttime and a cloud of glorious presence by day unto the promised land. Who is this greater Moses? Well, Peter speaks up in Acts chapter 3, and he says this in one of the first apostolic sermons of the early church era. He says, quote, verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Peter goes on, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
Who is Peter speaking of, kids, when he gives this sermon? Does anyone know, young people? That's correct. The greater Moses that has arrived was announced and introduced by his apostles, Jesus Christ. And now we turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and we see echoed by the author these same themes. There are two other references in Hebrews that we'll touch upon as well this morning to emphasize Jesus is the greater Moses given his number one office, number two covenant, and number three atonement. You could ask, or you could phrase a question this way. How is Jesus greater than Moses? Well, in three different passages in the book of Hebrews, I, they, uh, the, the author identifies Jesus as greater than Moses in as much as his office is greater. And major point number two, in as much as his covenant is greater. And finally, his atonement is greater. Those are our three major points this morning. Let us consider what, uh, the first one in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 to start. Jesus is the greater Moses, given his office. Uh, kids in the room, I wonder if any of you can tell me what the threefold office of Jesus is. Jesus serves in three ways, three special jobs that Jesus has. Kids, do you know what they are? Anyone want to shout them out? Uh, not exactly. Another, another one? Uh, yes, Ellie. Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. A little collusion before service. I might have tipped off a few kids to the answer. Full disclosure. <laughs> Prophet, priest, and king. Now, why is this significant? Because nowhere in Scripture, fully and sufficiently in one man, has this threefold or manifold office been represented. That is to say, redemptive history, God's covenant future, was waiting for a time when a greater Moses would arise, who would, yes, be a great prophet, the greatest of all, but also be a priest and advocate on behalf of the people and also be a king. Hebrews introduces, introduces him in comparison and then by a greater measure with respect to Moses in Hebrews 3.1. He says, again, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. Jesus is not just the apostle, but he's more. He is the high priest. He's identified by two other terms as well. Notice in verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And then there's one more reference in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and so forth. So four references to the superior glory of Jesus that the author uses there. Apostle, high priest, builder of the house, and son. That is, son of God. Jesus Christ is the greater Moses given his office described in these terms. These terms indicate that he is first and foremost. What does it mean? This is a unique reference to Jesus as an apostle, but what, what does that mean? Well, apostle in the scriptures, in the language, the original language, means simply sent one. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, ordained from before creation began, from eternity past, at the fullness of time, at the perfect moment, by God's sovereign plan, was sent by the Father to take on the duty, to take on the call, to satisfy the atonement that our sins uh, deserved, or that the, take on the punishment that our sin deserved in his act of redemptive atonement in his work and ministry here on earth. 
In this, Jesus was the sent one. He was the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The author emphasizes immediately the manifold office of Christ. He was the one sent by the Father, and as such, the messenger and ambassador. He was much more. He was the Word made flesh, and he was high priest as well. Now, what is the job of a prophet? Kids, you may remember this. A prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God, right? You can think of all the prophets of old. They would hear the word of the Lord, and the Lord would send them would say, this is my word to deliver to the people. But a priest's role typically was a little different. The priests would represent the people on behalf of God. So the people would bear the sins, as it were, or the plea of the people to be forgiven their sins before the Lord. They would pray representing the people and try to intercede on their behalf before the Lord. It is unique in the office of Christ that he is indeed both. Jesus Christ speaks the word of God. He is the word made flesh to men in his ministry and proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But more than this, Jesus represents you before the Father. We sing these songs all the time. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. That is a poetic reference to the vestments of the high priest. He would literally wear the names of the tribes of Israel of old, when he went into the holy place to plead for God's mercy on their behalf. How much greater a high priest, Jesus Christ, whose names he has, if you are a blood-bought, if you are a believer, on his heart, on his hands, when he goes and prays on your behalf. Do you think God the Father answers the prayer of Jesus Christ, his son? Absolutely. You better believe it. Not a single prayer of Jesus Christ will ever go unanswered because he is in perfect triune relationship with the Godhead, perfect union and relationship with his Father. And in this way, if you can have a relationship with him, you are guaranteed access, audience, and have an advocate and a go-between who is a prophet that delivers to you God's word, but is a priest that represents you before the Father, not just in prayer, but also as we'll further see in offering himself as a sacrifice. Jesus was both prophet and priest. He was apostle and priest in these words. And, in his, and as such, he was a sufficient mediator. That means a go-between, even supplying his own blood as the reconciling sacrifice. More than just the first and the foremost, he was appointed. And in this sense, he was like Moses. It says that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses, Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So two things are true, and this is one of the themes of our message today. Jesus is like Moses, but Jesus is greater than Moses. Those two things are true. Remember last week, we talked about the appointing of Moses, if you will, or the calling of Moses. From the very beginning, from his infancy, God's plan for Moses' life was evident to those who had 20-20 hindsight. He was saved from the waters of judgment that otherwise were destroying every firstborn or all the male children that were born to the Hebrews. But remember what his mom did, kids? How was Moses saved from the Nile? You guys remember? He uh, made a small ark. That's correct. A small basket, a small ark. Those two terms are both correct. Translated in your Bible, probably basket, is a Hebrew word that also means ark. A tiny ark was prepared to carry Moses safely as through water. So when they were standing at the Red Sea, and I forgot to mention this last week, uh, kids, what does Moses' name mean? Anybody know that? Drawn out of the water. 
So imagine this, you're standing at the Red Sea and there's certain judgment or there's certain destruction before you on one hand and then there's a, 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 there's a pursuing army, it's Pharaoh's army on the other and you're freaking out. Well, remember in that moment that your leader's very name means drawn out of the water. You see, Moses was appointed for this task. He had already gone safely through the water in that ark that God sovereignly moved his mother to prepare for him so that he had gone before the people in deliverance. You see the picture? Now, Jesus was also appointed. He was like Moses in that way, but he was greater than. Now, Jesus' name means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves, God saves. Jesus himself had a calling that included a travel, a journey from Egypt into the promised land when he was very young. And this was to fulfill a prophecy. Out of Egypt, I, had, I have called my son. So we see that there's a similar calling that Jesus is going to have as Moses. He would also be a deliverer. But what does Jesus do? Instead of being saved through the waters of judgment, he actually goes to death on the cross and like was prefigured in Jonah, was buried, so to speak, in the belly, or just as Jonah was buried in the heart of the sea, Jesus was buried in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Kids, did he stay there? Did Jesus stay in the grave? What happened on the third day? That is correct. He rose from the dead. And so Jesus was drawn safely through, or he uh, charted a way safely through death. So now, when he is proclaimed as the first and the foremost and the appointed one, as the apostle, the high priest, the builder, and the son, as the prophet, the priest, and the king, we're talking about a, a, a man and who was also fully God that actually made a way through death. And now we stand at the door of death one day. We're all mortal, right? And we stand following one whose name means Yahweh delivers. And we can remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and even as is pictured in baptism, so we will be raised with him one day. This is Jesus, the greater Moses, pictured in his office. And then finally, he is not just first and foremost and appointed, but he is the glorious son. The difference between a builder and the house. I build houses, and um, nobody, no homeowner has ever come up to the house and said, uh, you are an amazing house. They don't just start talking to the door and say, boy, I love your hinges. They don't walk into the kitchen and say, your countertops are awesome. They don't walk into the bathroom and say, wow, I really love your layout. You laid yourself out so well. Why? It's foolish. We're laughing. It's absurd. Why? Because the builder is the one responsible for the glory of the house, right? So if you imagine yourself, uh, the ability to save yourself, it's just as stupid as that analogy I just gave you. No. And, and, or if you look to Moses as your salvation, as some uh, traditions still do in some way, shape, or form, it's just as absurd. It's to give the glory to the house. No, there is a builder. Moses is just the house. He's just the structure. Who is the genius? Who's the creator? Who's the sovereign behind him? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the triune God of Scripture. He is the one who deserves the glory. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but who is the greater? The Son. Christ is faithful over God's house as the Son. More glorious still. This is even pictured in the experience of Moses versus Jesus. Now, do you guys remember when Moses would talk to God, a reflection of God's glory would sort of linger on him for a while. And he would even need to be veiled because the people were freaked out to see his, his face glowing with God's glory. But that glory was veiled. The scriptures say this is symbolically significant. And the glory presumably faded. He wasn't glowing like all the time. 
But do you guys remember what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration, kids, when Jesus goes up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they see beyond the natural into the spiritual realm? What is Jesus' face like? It's shining like the, does anyone know? It's shining like the sun. What was that a picture of? For a moment, their eyes were opened to the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, greater glory, whose face shone in that pre-incarnate glory moment or his face, I guarantee, shines right now, even as Revelation reveals him, as the one with eyes as flames of fire. He is the glorious Son. Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, given his office, his appointment, and his glorious sonship. Major point number two, turn to Hebrews 8. Jesus is the greater Moses, given his covenant. What is a covenant, young people? Some questions today. What's a covenant? Yeah, covenant. Kids, you know, anyone? Covenant is a promise. It can be also described as an agreement or relationship between two parties, correct? Very good. In Hebrews 8, we have this in verse 6. Listen. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. By the way, this is a citation from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So who did God use to take Israel by the hand and lead them out of Egypt? That, of course, was Moses, right? But now a greater covenant is, is on the horizon, is on the scene, has come. That is to say, a greater Moses will take us by the hand and lead us out of bondage to sin and death unto eternal life. And how much greater is this covenant? We continue to see. It says, uh, this covenant... It's not like the one I made with their fathers, verse 9, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this, uh, for this is the covenant that I will make, verse 10, with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. And now listen for a difference. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Finally, verse 13, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is become, becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it was with Moses in the Mosaic order. Moses and his order and the priestly order of Moses were becoming obsolete. Why? Because they were fulfilled and eclipsed in Jesus, the greater Moses. And here we see he's greater because not only in office, but also his covenant is greater. The preceding context in verse 8 refers to the tabernacle, which these instru or these, the furniture of the tabernacle and the reality of tabernacle slash temple worship um, the author points to these and says they were but type and shadow, but copy and shadow. They were significant in that they pointed to something else, but there would come a time when the greater would arise. 
and would purchase for us access before a holy God in the true holy of holies. Now, the covenant of Jesus Christ, this new covenant language, is better, first of all, because it's permanent. The covenant of old in verses 6 through 9 is described as something provisional. It provided deliverance for the people out of Egypt. But did it stick? No. If you are baptized into Moses, that is to say, if you are merely baptized into Moses, this is not enough to protect your standing from the threat of your own sin. Moses is not a sufficient savior. Moses can deliver you from the Red Sea. Moses cannot deliver you from your rebellious, complaining heart. A greater Moses must arise to deliver you from your sin. The permanence of the new covenant is part of what, or is one aspect which makes it stand apart. The people, you would think, wow, this great deliverance, you just cry, I will never doubt Moses or the Lord and the appointment of his leader ever again. How could I ever forget that we crossed the Red Sea? Well, we all know the story. That wasn't sufficient. That experience of miraculous deliverance was not sufficient to keep them faithful. The book of Hebrews is concerned with this idea. What is sufficient to keep us faithful? If an experience of deliverance through the Red Sea is not, well, the answer is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, the life transformation of the redeemed heart, regeneration, which the Bible calls being born again. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you, as pictured in baptism, that is sufficient. Baptism into Jesus is sufficient to keep you all the while. It is a permanent situation. Hey, kids, what is sin? What is sin? Anyone give me a definition? That would be the consequences of sin. Going against God, disobeying God, did I hear? Very good. Any want of conformity or transgression of God's law, one of the confessions says. So God has spoken His word, His law, and sin is falling short of that, right? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, this was evident when the Ten Commandments, God's standard, are measured up against the human heart, and it shows that we fall short. Notice verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. Okay, imagine Moses, right? He was on Mount Sinai. Kids, what did God give Moses on Mount Sinai? It came in two pe- The Ten Commandments. Moses comes down the mountain with the law of God. This is an external covenant, if you will. Or the law is written not on the heart, as it were, but on these stones. Now Moses is greeted by quite the scene when he descends the mountain at first, is he not? The people are worshiping false gods. So here we have a contrast. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image, written right here on the stone that Moses is holding. And now we have all the people over here worshiping a golden calf. What was written on the stone condemned them. Moses smashes those tables, and I always think of the law of God being broken and pictured in that instance. So the law condemned the people, and they shook and quaked with the fear of, before the fear and wrath of God because they knew they were sinners, caught red-handed in idolatry. The mountain of Sinai shook with the obvious presence of God's power to judge. We're talking cloud, lightning, firestorm, earthquake. And this is the way the Old Covenant is described. It is an external reality of the law of God that condemns you. And now in the Gospel, 
it's still, this relevance comes to the fore. In other words, in your life, believer, or if you're an unbeliever, it is true right now, there stands a point in your life where you are in violation of God's law. And a preacher comes to you, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel and says, you have fallen short of his glory. Have you ever stolen anything? We've all maybe seen Ray Comfort, you know, do his way of the master presentation on the street. Have you ever uh, had a lustful thought? Well, that means you're an adulterer. That means you're a thief. What is Ray doing in that instance? He is holding up the external law of God as a measuring stick and demonstrating that they fall short. And this was all the old covenant or a mere external covenant could do. However, for those who are true believers, something different was the case. That law moved from the tablets of stone and was written on the tables of a heart. When God transforms us, suddenly the law that condemned us and made us quake with fear and feel only guilt becomes a glorious vision for how to worship God because He has saved us. We talked about this even in the picture of Israel's redemption. They were led sovereignly in spite of their complaining through the Red Sea and received that deliverance, but it was deliverance unto law-keeping. That law-keeping would not be possible until the law of God was written on their hearts. So, how is the, covenant, uh, how is the new covenant greater? Well, it's a permanent covenant. There's an internal aspect of it. We call this the third use of the law, where the word of God takes residence in our heart, and now we are pleased to worship God by following Him. But this happens when God transforms us in our conversion, in regeneration. And then the third element of covenant, that's way better now, is there's a divine priesthood. Notice in verse 11 in Hebrews 8, And they shall not teach each other his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And this is speaking of an era where fellowship with God bypasses the human, the mere human middleman. There used to be a time among God's people where if you wanted your prayers heard, you had to go through a priest, a human priest, also a sinner. And you had to offer a sacrifice, insufficient yet powerfully symbolic, a lamb or an animal that would be slain to uh, represent your sins covered or atoned for. But now all this, as the author says, has grown obsolete. and We have something better. It's a new covenant. And now we have Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who has been offered in our place in the perfect high priest without sin to go before us. And this brings up our third and final point today. Jesus is the greater Moses given his office. We just covered covenant. And number three, atonement. In the next chapter, chapter 9, we read as much. Notice verse 19. Our author says, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he, Moses, took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And why? Here, listen to the second portion of that verse. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What is atonement? It's the covering over of sin when a sufficient sacrifice is offered. And here, the symbolic sacrifice was the animals. And that blood symbolized a covering, right? 
But there was something better on the horizon. A greater Moses would come. Verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies, so these things we just read of, are copies of the heavenly things, be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, so that would be tabernacle, temple, holy of holies, right? Which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. And now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Are you hearing Jesus' priestly office implied in these remarks? Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, right? The high priests of old had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice because they were insufficient. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed to man, for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Jesus Christ is the greater Moses in his office, in his covenant, and in his atonement. There is heavenly intercession going on here. You know, in the old days, there was great hope, and that high priest went into the holy place, and that same area where Moses would commune with God, and that visible presence of God's glory was there. And you had that hope that your sins were being represented by the high priest. However, he was just a mere man. Nevertheless, this copy and this shadow spoke of something to come. There would be another high priest in the future who wouldn't go into a holy place made like a tabernacle or a temple, but indeed would go before the Father himself into heaven, as it were, to plead your case. I wonder what heaven is in your understanding. I'll just give a brief application and a word of critique. You know, uh, heaven is a popular idea in our culture, but the popular notion of heaven, I submit, is not a biblical one. For most people, heaven is nothing more than a psychological crutch to cope with the reality of death. For most people, heaven is nothing more than a psychological, a mental crutch to cope with the reality of death. That's not what heaven is according to Scripture. Heaven is the place, according to Hebrews 9, of reconciliation, of, of God's holy and unadulterated, absolutely pure presence. And the only way to get there is to have your sins covered by a sufficient sacrifice and to have a high priest who goes before you with an offering that will secure you audience before a holy God that dwells in unapproachable light. No sinner could ever grace the presence of an almighty God without instant judgment and death unless a sufficient sacrifice has been provided. That's what heaven is. Heaven is not a psychological crutch. Heaven is a holy place guarded by the cherubim, so to speak, and a flaming sword, which there is no entry without the purchasing power of the most precious of all commodities in all the universe, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who himself died to save you. This is the truth of the superior atonement. Jesus is the greater Moses, given his atonement. He intercedes in heaven itself, and he offers himself as the once for all sacrifice. And when does he do so? He does so at the end of the ages. What does this mean? It means that all redemptive history was looking forward to this moment. It means that this was the time when the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 was to be fulfilled. 
It meant that what the prophets proclaimed was on the horizon had now dawned upon the people of God. And as John the Baptist went forth to make straight the way of the Lord and pointed to Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, he was recognizing by the Spirit's power that this was a sufficient sacrifice whose death and whose blood would grant you audience if you believed in his holy name into heaven, into the glorious reconciliation, fellowship, friendship, presence of an utterly, ultimately holy God. Jesus is the greater Moses inasmuch as his atonement is sufficient and superior. His sacrifice of himself renders the old order obsolete. Why? By fulfillment, right? He eclipsed it by fulfillment and sufficiency. And let's close with this note. He's coming again. Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many, but will appear a second time. You guys remember last week, the Lord came. He came in cloud and presence. And if you were in Moses, if you were baptized into Moses, he came as your powerful deliverer. He came as your shield to protect you from Pharaoh's armies. And he came as the wind of the Spirit to separate the uh, ocean of the Red Sea, so to speak, the, the, the waters of the Red Sea to grant you safe passage. But it also says that the cloud of God's presence visited Pharaoh's armies as well. He looked down upon them, caused their chariot wheels to clog with mud, and then commanded Moses to stretch out his hand, his servant. And what happened? The waters closed back on those armies. And so the Lord came again, as it were, a sort of second coming event or day of the Lord or a coming of the Lord event. But for those who were not baptized into Moses, it was a coming of judgment. Saints, and any potential unbelievers in the sound of my voice, Jesus Christ is coming again. And on that day of his coming, it will either be a glorious ransom uh, through death itself unto heaven eternal, or for the last time in history, the waters, so to speak, of his judgment. Indeed, the fires will engulf all of those who are yet rebels against his name. Now, do you look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ? Is that fearful? Does it sound like Sinai to you? If you feel the guilt of your sin and you have not confessed or repented and believed that Jesus Christ took the guilt of your sin, the coming of the Lord is a horrific, traumatic, terrorizing event that you will not escape without judgment. You will beg for the rocks to fall on you. However, if you are baptized into Jesus Christ, so to speak, if you have been included in him, if you believe that he died for you, that he supplied as the greater Moses, sufficient in his office, sufficient in his covenant, sufficient in his atonement, audience, safe passage for you before the Father, then you can look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 says as much. Let's close with these verses. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that is confidence also, uh, we can apply that uh, scripture as well, confidence to look forward to the second coming of Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts, listen, especially those who will be baptized, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen? So what we see here is that if you are a believer, young people who will be baptized today, 
and what is symbolized in these waters of baptism is real for you, then you can approach the presence of God boldly and without shame. And you can look forward to the second coming, not with terror, but with holy welcome. And the gates of heaven will rise and open for you because Jesus' blood has been sprinkled on you and covers, atones, washes away, and satisfies the judgment for all your sins. Uh, young people, in baptism today, never forget what it represents. In this baptism memory, that's, and I trust it will stick with you, what you are remembering is that Jesus was buried, and when he was buried, your sins were judged. When you rise up from these waters, you remember that Jesus rose from the dead, and in him so you will rise as well. In these waters, remember that Jesus Christ is the only way to be delivered from the waters of judgment. Think of Noah's flood, think of the Nile and Moses, think of the Red Sea, think of the end of days. The only way to be delivered safely through the waters of judgment is if you are baptized into Jesus Christ. If you count him as your Lord and your Savior. Young people, as you approach the waters of baptism today, remember that what is represented here when you come up out of that water is you are a new person. This symbolizes that you are born again. When God does a work in changing your heart, it means that you are a new individual. The old has gone and the new has come. Never forget that in this moment you are proclaiming your faith to all of us as witnesses. I belong to Jesus now. I will follow him all my days. I am baptized into Christ, and as such, I belong to the body of Christ, and you are members in his holy church, and this is evident in this event as well. What do we remember in baptism? All these things. Now, if I gave you a quiz, you probably couldn't rattle them all off. It's not so important. The main thing is, is to understand that the scriptures are powerfully rich with the meaning of what you are testifying to today. So dig into those scriptures, young people. Never forget this moment. And always remind the devil, any doubter, and even your own mind, that I am a baptized saint. I love Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. If you should ever be tempted to turn from your faith. Now at this point, I invite those who will be baptized. You can uh, retreat to the back and prepare for baptism. If you need to get changed or do whatever, and then in a few moments, we'll reconvene up front here. So go ahead and do that. As they are doing so, I have a few words from Matthew 28. And we try to read these words at every baptism at Providence so as to remind ourselves of the perspective of all of covenant history, the Great Commission, and the commandment of our Lord. <clears throat> you all remember, I'm sure, the end of Jesus' life and ministry, or end of Jesus' life, then his resurrection, his life on earth and ministry, is drawing to a close, and he gathers his disciples around him in Matthew 28. It says, verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when, he saw them, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, listen for the three alls, okay? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the second one. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you want, you can add a fourth there. All authority, all nations, all that I've commanded, and I will always be with you. When in this baptism today, we are obeying the commandment of our Lord 2,000 plus years ago, and we are joining with the experience of those who are baptized in Jesus Christ in the very beginning when Peter was preaching those words that the greater Moses had come. In baptism, we recognize that we are now, if you are being baptized today, included in that number. Remember, 3,000 were added to their number in one single day. Today, six from Cross Lake, Minnesota, will be added to that number, which is growing bigger and bigger and bigger to the praise of God's glorious name. That's what's going on here. This event right here is of cosmic significance. Jesus died and gave us a commandment to continue this practice until he returns. And so we will when, all who, when anyone comes across our you know, uh, fellowship circle here, confesses faith and believes. And this is our conviction. And so we follow the words of our master, our Lord and Savior. So remember this, that today we baptize according to the commandment of Jesus in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because he is glorified in this and his church is recognized through the same and the covenant relationship in each individual heart is sealed by this act. And so we proceed with our baptism today.